Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. These days, positively charged toxic EMFs are everywhere, but your biofield runs on a negative charge, just like your body's cells. So how do you protect it? I've been using organ effects products like the GeoCleanse and Enerband for years because their technology addresses what others don't, that is the toxic positive charge of harmful EMF, neutralizing it. Head to brendandmurphy.com slash EMF to learn more and get yours and enter Murphy at checkout for 10% off. All right, welcome to the show, ladies and gents. This week on Truthverse, I'm joined by a lovely lady called Nina Angelo, and she is uh, living in Australia currently. She is an artist, an author, and a storyteller. And one of the main reasons I'm I'm bringing Nina on to, to chat today is because she has an interesting pedigree, and she's been pretty vocal and critical of what's been happening in the uh, in the in the world, particularly in Australia. As an Australian, we are one of the most tyrannical um operating under one of the most tyrannical regimes um on the planet and also obviously you know obviously it's part of the globalist um you know uh, umbrella we come under that and we are one of the five eyes countries as well so we're very very much embedded in the control matrix um and nina is well excuse my uh my little notification cropping up there so Nina is a critic of what's going on, like myself, and a freedom a freedom lover. As far as I can tell, she's very much on the same page and um, outspoken. And and she she is actually the daughter of survivors of Auschwitz. Her father and mother both survived the uh, the death camps. And I'm going to bring Nina in to just elaborate on this. Her mother was Polish, uh, father was Jewish, and they met. It's what you've outlined for me so far, Nina, is quite a remarkable story. Um, could you, yeah, could you maybe jump off from there and elaborate for us how that came about and how you came about? Yeah. Yes, hello, Brendan. Thank you for asking me. I think it's really important that we have these talks, these discussions at sure. this particular time. Um, my father was a Greek Spanish Jewish man. His family were kicked out of Spain during the Inquisition 600 years before and ended up like a lot of the Jews, they wandered the earth and ended up in northern Greece, which was then part of Turkey. My mother was a young Polish girl. Uh, She came from a family of doctors. Her mother and father were both doctors. And um, she managed to survive. She was 16 years younger than my dad. So she was only 16 when the war, uh, when the Nazis came in. Or actually she was 11 or 12 when things were rumbling And uh, she writes about, because she wrote her story in my book, um, Don't Cry Dance, of uh, walking down the street with her girlfriend, never having a real Jewish upbringing any more than I did, or my mother. Even though we were Jewish in culture, we weren't Jewish in faith. We We didn't practice the faith of Judaism, and I really know very little about it. You know, I went to a Church of England girls' school. I know more about all of that, but. Um, so they, they, my mum was walking down the street with her best friend who um, was a Catholic girl and these two boys were coming down. They were in the innocence of their youth, you know, 11, 12 years old. And um, they walked up towards the, these boys did and they said to 
they called my mum a dirty Jew, I don't know how, and they spat on her and they slapped her across the face and threw her to the ground. That was when everything changed for my mother because she just saw herself as being a Polish. She was a Polish girl. She'd never been touched, let alone hit and called that. And that was the beginning, really, of her journey and looking into what was happening with the Nazi regime and um, the taking over. She left her story for us, Brenda, and I was very fortunate. She wrote her story for us up until the time she died in 85, by the way, 1985. Um, she wrote it so that we know a bit about our family because we have nobody apart from one uncle on my father's side, an uncle on my mother's side, and my grandfather who died when I was eight. Um, that was all. The rest were, were all taken. So she left that story until the Gestapo got her and she could not do any more. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got a frog in my throat. You're right, no worries. Um, so when it got to the point where she actually could not write anymore, when the Gestapo got her, she, she was on the old typewriter. This was back in the late 60s, early 70s, she started doing this. My twins, I have twins, they were born in 72. Mm. And so she started doing this. When it got to that, I said, Mum, okay, I'll interview you and you can tell us the rest of the stories. But she had a cancer, um, a lymphatic cancer, and she, I was, I kept putting it off because I kept thinking the quicker I did the rest of her story, the quicker she'd die. It was sort of, you know, in my head. But my brother-in-law interviewed her and I had the tapes and, um, and they got burnt in my house fire. I've had two house fires and I didn't take copies. And I even thought I lost her printed story, which was just in a wad of papers and it was through some miracle going through stuff in my house that had burnt down that I found a box up the back. I don't know how come. And I pulled out and all my poetry, her story fell out and I had that. So that was the beginning. My own story as a storyteller friend said, put yours with your mother's. It's an amazing story. But then I had a visit from uh, some friends who were Greek couple. He's an academic and she's um an artist, and we were talking about family and one thing and another. And uh, she, when they left and went back to Sydney, she went online. Now, I'm not good at going online and doing all the research and everything. I think your younger generation are born with an extra computer chip in your brain that, that understands this. But she sent me an email with a link, and I clicked on that link, and there was my dad talking because my dad never talked about mm his family or, you know, I picked up little bits and pieces, but he never talked about his life. There were seven hours of interviews in the Holocaust Museum in Washington in the United States from my dad. I remember a woman interviewing him after my mum died and he really didn't want to, but she pushed him. Thank God for that because I then got the, um, I had all his story. So my mum's in the first person, my dad's is in the first person. So it's like they're talking to you mm. and you actually can hear their accent in the way that I've done this. And my story is part two. There's lots of photos. 
and it's in the first person as well. And um, that brings you much closer to it. There you go. Yeah, beautiful. That's very powerful. Mm. Very powerful. So the way you broke down, the way the way that they met was actually really incredible. You gave me an outline of that um, before we actually started recording. And and that in itself was quite remarkable. I mean, you, you know, the odds of you actually even being here at all um, just yeah. through their chance encounters was amazing. Yes, I think that's how it was then, you know, and it wasn't just about luck. It, it was about that survivor instinct in you. It was about never giving up. Um, and and my parents were never victims. You know, my mum, we used to dance. They danced. They played music. We'd go on picnics. We'd go on camping trips. We're always every weekend somewhere. So they embraced life because they had seen the absolute worst that they could possibly see and experience. Mm. And uh, as I was saying to you before, Brendan, um, when I started writing this book in 2017, I decided I wanted to do it uh, by my, my 70th birthday. I had to leave something behind for my children and my grandchildren and my sister and brothers. Otherwise, you don't have any history to hold on to. Everything else was wiped out. We can't go and ask for a story of this and that because there weren't the people. And so I was very determined uh, to put this down. So we had a sense of who we were. That's, um, you know, how that, that part happened. Mm. Yeah, I mean... Mm. The so your your mother was captured and your father were they were he was captured um, completely independently of one another. Yeah. Tell it. Can you tell us yeah. how that that sort of played out? Okay. Yeah. Well, I just <coughs> clear my throat again. Have another drink of water. By all means, please. <laughs> okay. My mum was sixteen years younger than my dad. She was just a young Polish girl. She never thought of herself as being Jewish. She was. You know, they just thought, well, that is the culture that they were born into. The Jews, Jews have been going on forever, but they never practised Judaism at home. And my, just like, you know, feel like an Australian guy or girl or whatever, until one day she was about 11, I think the, the Nazis, the rumbling of the Nazis was starting through Europe. And uh, it, she was walking down the street with her girlfriend one day, a young girl called Halina. My mother's name was Janina um, or Yanka. It's what I call it, Yanka story too. Um, and they were just holding hands, just being 11, 12-year-olds, and these boys were walking up the street towards them and came straight up to the, as they moved to get out of the way, these boys came straight up to her and spat on my mum, slapped her across the face, threw her to the ground and called her a dirty Jew. That's where everything changed for her because she just didn't understand what that innocence mm. went with that. Um, and then she and her friends started looking into it and studying and looking into Judaism and, you know, all that she started researching. My father... Um, he joined the, he was from Thessaloniki in northern Greece, where a lot of Jews, there were 70, about 60 or 70,000 Jews, um, Sephardic Jews. So my mum was an Ashkenazi, which is northern Europe, mm -hmm. Sephardi and more the Mediterranean hot blooded Jews. And um, he 
his mother, her father was a rabbi, so my father's grandfather, my father's grandfather was a rabbi, but he did not want to go and do all that. He didn't feel affiliated. So when he was 11, he, or 12 too, again, he actually joined the Socialist Party. And so he never, he did go occasionally to the synagogue if his mother asked him, but there was never any attachment. And so by joining the Socialist Party, when the Nazis came into Greece, they were the mountain people, the revolutionaries, um, and he became part of them. And he was caught as a political prisoner and sent to Auschwitz. Now, the reason he was a political prisoner and he was in a jail in Athens where the political prisoners were, and in the next compound, so they were just walking around, in the next compound were all the Jews. And what happened if any Nazi or any German was killed, if it was a soldier, they'd probably kill 10 of the political prisoners. If it was an officer, they'd just come in and, and just shoot, you know, 20 or 30, They whichever way. Now, And my father remembered seeing in the next compound or across the fence all these Jews that were just sitting there and the most they were doing was picking up rocks and building a wall and dismantling the wall the next day and doing really menial stuff. But they weren't being threatened because there was a greater plan for them. And my father thought, hang on, if I stay here, I could just be shot. Maybe it's safer over on that side. So he went up to the, um, the soldier and he said, I'm in the wrong place. I'm Jewish. Mm. That was the first time that he said that. Mm. And the, the guy went crazy and uh, all this is in, in the book. Mm -hmm. And, and um, they put him in with the others and then they were put on the transport, on the trains, the cattle trains, and took him up to Auschwitz. Mm. My mother was on the run from a very young age. When they came in, she was about 16 and she was on the run on false papers as a Catholic girl right up until I think it was about 43 44, so she was constantly on the run and taking, um, you know, being uh, going into churches and, and learning about the Catholic religion or doing anything because she had the false papers. But they, the Gestapo caught, caught her and uh, she was also sent to Auschwitz. So they went through other camps and, that, again, that's all, all written down mm. and that's where they got their numbers on their arms and that's where they first met. My father, being a, um, a socialist and uh, a Jew in there, he got into the a very elite commando prisoners in the camp called the Canada Commando. And the Canada Commando was named that because they would think of Canada as being the land of milk and honey and freedom. They didn't know about Australia then. Um, <laughs> And so in that commando, there were only about 60 or 70 of them. They were the only prisoners that were allowed to go onto the platforms and that was their role, their job, and to go into the cattle trains after they disgorged all these people and, um, and take all their stuff their suitcases, they bought their money, they bought food, they bought their gold and their diamonds and everything. 
because they thought that they were going to be put somewhere else, you know, that they would start again. That's what they were told. Again, the lies. And that was their job. By doing that, they could then secrete into little suitcases. They could put things in and they bribed all the guards Mm. in the camp with all these extra things. And they had their own barrack and they would also take stuff into their barrack, food and all sorts of things. And he saved a few people. So he made a pass at my mother. You know, there was nothing in that camp, you know, a bit of a bit of loving, a bit of a hug, you know, just some just feeling another human. Um, so because they had the blankets, you know, the Kanada commando, they had blankets and they had food and they could entice the women to, to lie down together. They had their little place. And he made a pass at my mum and she knocked him back. Um, she was young and frightened, traumatised, and he's this Greek, 16 years older than her, and she knocked him back. And uh, when the war ended, she was taken out on this um, march, this death march through the forest. My father, he went to another camp because that was all it. That was, they just met for that nano moment. Mm. And then they went. They were taken by the Red Cross separately, totally separately, and they chose Paris because they both spoke French. That was their common language. My parents spoke 13 languages between them. Wow. So, but their common language then was French. And so my mother hoped that she would find her father, who may have survived. He was a doctor and he left to fight with the Polish-English hmm. army. And she hoped that she'd find him. She went to Paris. He went to Paris. He just refused to to go to Greece because he could speak French. And they actually met again in the Red Cross canteen as refugees in Paris. And that, uh, and I wrote a beautiful a story, their love story, how they met. And that's why this colour it's called the woman in the teal blue dress. And um, how. How, that, that's another beautiful story that's in there and that's how they met and fell in love and um, how they happened to get to Greece and have me in Athens. Um, mm. Again, it's another story. So I was born in 1949, sorry, 1947 in March um, and I came into the world and I was their first new life. After they'd lost everybody, there was me. And I'm still out there doing what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they'd be absolutely stoked to be watching and probably are. <clears throat> I hope so. Mm. I'm honouring them. It seems like you're really doing an amazing job of that. And, um, should, yeah, getting the story out there and, and um, sharing that little, that little, those little fragments of history that otherwise we'd never know about. You know, it's really it's something I value a lot. Um, yeah. I think it's very powerful. So yeah, our stories are very are very important, Brendan. Our stories are so important. Yeah. And oh God, sorry, I'm really sorry. That's all right. My son's just arriving. Oh God! Can can you edit this? I can take that out. That's all right. Okay. Yes, I as a storyteller, and this is what I'm doing now with my work. As I said before, we need to go deep into ourselves and we need to come to terms with 
and shake hands with our stories of childhood and the traumas that we have experienced. Because while we put them away, which most people do, we this is what's happening at this time now when everyone's in their lockdown, everyone's taken out of their safety net of going to the club and going to the pub and going to the footy and doing this and doing that. Because while you're in that, while you're doing, 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 you're not facing, facing, facing. This is that time now. Yeah, it's, it's so, so important. I, I, I like to repeat that. To, you know, I probably sound like a broken record when I get onto it, but it's so important to do that. You know, work. Um, yeah, so you did mention also that you had, um, you dealt with the lymphatic cancer as well. And you said that was a generational thing as well. So I, I found that really, I think that's a, it's worth talking about as well because trauma is a big thing now. And obviously, you know, that relates to the experiences your parents went through and the horrible traumas that they, they were put through. And then you've said, well, you've got, you've got it kind of almost passed down to you in a sense. Um, and how, how was that activated? You said something quite interesting about that. Yes, Brendan, and, you know, I've learned a lot through all of this now. It's called the intergenerational trauma, and we know that our Aboriginal people, it's a known medical, scientific, whatever you want to call it, to please the people that only believe in the science, um, the fact that we do suffer and the children and families of the Holocaust suffer uh, can have that, um, as well as our Aboriginal people when masses are eradicated like that. Um, it came up in me doing the story. It took me about three and a half years uh, to do my book and to go over and over listening to my father's voice, listening to, to all that he said, the horrors of the camp, the horrors of the things that experienced, as well as the writing of my mother's story, which she had written and I added my bit. Now, every time, sorry, yeah, so what happened is it going over and over and reading and rereading and editing and what it does and what it did to me was it brought something up within me that I did not know. I had a wonderful childhood. I, my parents, to them, I was their new life. I was their optimistic what was ahead. We came to this country, to Australia, when I was two years old. This was like they had every opportunities. And so I had all that love. My parents, they were never victims. You know, what happened to them was terrible. Um, they would have gone through such terrible post-traumatic stuff. And particularly, I think I was in utero in my mom when she was, she had no one to talk to. She mm. didn't speak Greek. She's in Greece. She's lost everybody. There's my dad and she's got me inside. And I imagine that post-traumatic, what everything that happened, they would have had to go over it. They were each other's counsellors. Mm. And, of course, I would have picked it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would have picked it up even after I was born, lying there as a baby, what they were going through. So that I started getting quite ill. Um, I, I thought I was actually grieving for all my family that I'd been writing about and hearing about and the horrors. And um, I was feeling quite weak. I was losing weight. 
And I don't do grief. I'm very, very firmly, you know, I, I have no problem with dying and when my time goes, I know what happens with the spirit. I know exactly, you know, I know what's going on. But um, it, my body was really showing something wasn't right. I launched the book in September at the Jewish Museum in Sydney. They were a big part of it in that, that they, they stamped it, that everything in it was right. It was important because I wanted to go to the schools. I want to talk to kids about this. I want to talk to people that this should never happen again. And that's what I remember my mum said. We must never forget because the minute we forget, these things can happen again. Hello, look what's happening now. And um, so this, is, this was a, a huge, big thing for me. And I was not well, had the big launch up here, one in, in uh, the Jewish Museum, one in our library here, which there was about 200 people who came to the launch because I'm, people know me here. You know, I've been living on the Central Coast for 45 years, been involved with the arts, the storyteller. I'm out there. And... Um, a lot of came and I wasn't well. People could see I wasn't well. And it was after that my kids, my twins who are here, said, Mum, go and have it checked. And I didn't even have a doctor, you know, the sort of clean life I let, had. And uh, when they, they did the, um, the send me for PET scans and things and they found that I had a stage four lymphoma which was a blood cancer, which ironically is what connects me to my ancestors. It's our blood connection sure. in our physical body. My spirit is my own. And this is one thing I've learned, you know, the person that you are, your personality, your spirit that makes Brendan, Brendan, Nina, Nina, and I can live in a, with my brothers and sisters and they were all different, but my spirit is a spark from up there. The physical body is what's connected to our DNA and our genetics. Mm. And that physical body is needed to carry the spirit around to do the work it's meant to do. And that's what these jabs are trying to do, to totally stuff up the physical body. So you yeah. see that, do you, do you actually see, and let's try and avoid the using the V word, um, but you yeah. actually see the those needles as um, spiritual warfare in, in some sense? I do because they're trying to break the body down. I mean, without the spirit, without the physical body, we can't do the work that we're doing here on this earth. You know, we, we do other, other work on other dimensions, but we can't do the work that we came here to do. Mm. And I know that I'm here to do this work that I've been doing. So without, without the physical body, the spirit, which is as strong as ever, and it's endless and it's ageless, that's why just about everyone I know, and I have a huge reach out there, they're all way younger than me. You know, just most, nearly all of people my age uh, are fairly conservative and quite frightened. Yeah, definitely, 100%. I can, I can vouch for that. Because my, my, my parents are actually um, your age. You're, you're the same generation as my, my parents. And yeah. um, I think everybody they know, literally all of their friends have gone and received the needle. Um, and you know, it's, it's just crazy to me that they're so, so easy, easy to control. Um, and, and you guys, like people like yourself in that generation stand out, uh, pardon the expression, like dog's balls, because, you know, you're not yeah. so easily uh, manipulated. Yeah, because we're free. 
you know, I'm a free, sovereign self myself. And if something doesn't feel right, and I really must say, if I hadn't had this lymphoma, which I did manage to beat through all odds, I managed it and I used the cannabis oil, I used the medicinal cannabis oil. I had six sessions of the chemo when I lost all my hair because I said my hair was red and curly and wild. Everyone knew me by my hair. They'd say, where's Nina? And someone would say, oh, she's taking her hair for a walk. You know, that's <laughs> how much my hair was a part of who I was. So when it all went, and funnily enough too, I always said there were only two constants in my life, my hair and my coffee in the morning. Everything was a changeable feast. Well, I went off coffee and my hair fell out. So what does that say? Mm. Hello, everything's changed. And from then, lying there, going through the healing while I alchemized it in my art, while I shared, not in a victim sense, but talking about it. And I find that people who I've known some people who got cancer, who had cancer, and they never talked about it. They just hit it. They didn't want to. It's as if they've got some sort of sexually transmitted disease. We need to open up and, and be open about these things. So, yeah, I got a lot of um, a lot of feed in by having no hair on my head. I understand now about the Buddhists and why, and I got a greater understanding of of just life itself. Mm-hmm. And and then, of course, COVID came in just as I was about to do my last chemo I remember going up to the hospital and I remember and it just started this was uh, 2020 early um in 2020 and I just thought please don't hold this off I just want to finish this thing so I can get on with what I'm here and that's when it started and everything changed so, so I mean, what a what an incredible sort of time of, of compression for you. You've got so much going. You're fighting for your life. You've got Cooties 19 kicking off, the world's biggest psyop that we've ever seen. And, um, I mean, God, you couldn't have thrown much more in there unless you, your house burned down or something, which thankfully it didn't. But, <laughs> um, I've, had, I've had two house fires, Brendan. I've lost two house fires. So. That's right. You've, uh, you've already ticked that box. So I'm, I'm hoping you don't get the hat trick on that one. Um, no. What is it about when you saw when you saw Cooties 19 kicking off? What is it about the situation that made you, you know, sort of what did you see that your parents had lived through and that time in, in connection? How were they related? Well, I think when it first happened, I was still uh, not well, you know, we're still going through and what the steroids and the chemo and everything was doing. Um, and so when they locked, they did their lockdown, I think it was about April, May or something like that in 2020. I just sort of thought, oh, well, I'm, I'm way ahead of the game here. I've been in lockdown for myself because your immune system is so compromised. So, you know, I've been lying here going through everything, so it's not an extra thing for me. And also my health philosophy is just trust and surrender. I honestly believe that. I don't do fight. You know, I, I her friends rang me and said she'd been looking after a woman who had cancer and she had died and she said and she fought to the end. And I remember that because I thought I never fought once. When we put that word fight in us, we put our bodies under a lot of pressure. Mm. 
We really do because when you do a fight, you've got to win or you've got to lose. Yeah, exactly. This is not what it's about. So I just did trust and surrender mm. and that's, that's how it worked for me and took me through. It wasn't until I started feeling better. I didn't let it affect me or anything. I'm very lucky. I live here. Um, I'm, I live, there's a lagoon right in front of me, a wildlife lagoon. I've got the beach just to my right. And I'm, I'm surrounded by Booty National Park. It's like got me in its arms. So I'm very fortunate to be right in the reality of nature and the birds and the trees. And that doesn't change. It's just humanity that, that's doing it. And that helped me in my healing. I didn't come to that point as yet. It was only after the second time when they said we had to wear masks and I had, that hadn't happened, my kids are freaking out. I'm saying, look, I'm protected. I'm okay. I'm not stupid. I can take care of myself. I will not go around near people. I won't stand around near people. You know, I'm my own person. If I can't protect myself, nobody else can. Yeah. But we were told to wear these masks. So I remember going into Aldi on this day and I put the mask on. One of the, the things about when you've had steroids and chemo, for me, my nose had run. It runs a lot. Can you imagine what it was like in a mask with my nose running because that mm. just blocked everything off? Mm. And I just, it freaked me out, you know. So I went on to my doctor to, that was when I first started feeling what is going on here. And I went to my doctor to get a thing that I don't have to wear a mask. I smile now, Brendan, because I go to this, I have to go and get groceries or whatever. You know, I'm fine. I'm the only one that isn't wearing a mask. I think I'm the one that's the best protected. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you on that 100% because, have you know, I mean, Nina, I don't know if you know the science around masks, but it's all pointing towards don't wear them because it's actually harmful to your health. Well, this is, and I'm not copying anything. I'm the one. I'm the one that's breathing the good, the reasonable air. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You're breathing fresh, you know? clean air. It's them who who, who aren't. <laughs> that's it. But that now, when this needle started, when this this jab started, and all that's the information because of, um, I am a, a connector. I do get information from everywhere from many different places. It's not like I'm only getting it from one place or another or, you know, I don't, that's not how I, I do it. It comes to me. I don't research it because others sent it to me. I don't have to research because my job here on this earth is as a connector. Mm. So it would come from everywhere. And I started seeing what's going on and I knew in my gut, so deep in my gut that I'm, this is not, this is not right. Something is not right. And I will not go there. And, um, and from then, I've just been watching all that's starting coming in and telling us the story of what's in there and how they're forcing it. And then the passports and the mandates and the, you can't go here and you can't go there and you've got a QI code and all of that. And that's when I went, oh, my God, this is just like what happened in Nazi Germany and Poland and Europe. This is what they did. They, they told the people. So your family could have lived next to this family for generations 
And then all of a sudden they came in and they told the people, the Jews have got tuberculosis, they've got TB, and they, you know, they're dangerous, stay away from them if you see any coming in. And that is how the division started there. And they started injecting them, forcing them. That same, same. We're, we're one step shy, we're only one step shy of, of being physically forced into it in, in Australia at this point. And, um, and I know for a fact that if, if the controlling powers who are running this scam, if they could do it, if they could get the, the police to do it or the military to do it, they would absolutely um, at the drop of a hat. So you've obviously, I mean, they had back in Germany, they had the, the, the Arnhem Pass, didn't they? They when you say that, that, you mean like a, a fact, like a certificate? Yeah, a the certificate. You couldn't go, go, yeah. can't go here, can't go there. Oh, you know? no way. No, God, if you're a Jew, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you couldn't go here, you couldn't go, you know, total yeah. segregation. And what turns six, like millions of people in Germany, everyday people like our neighbours and that, turned them against the others. That's what I started seeing. And it, Brendan, it hadn't affected me personally until just recently. That's why I'm saying now I'm everything is moving so fast and it affected. The first thing that affected me, I, I got under my hairdresser. It's only a couple of weeks ago. And I wrote to him one night and I said, I just want to check with you when you do get back, whether the salon, because he, he just rents a chair in two different salons, if they're going to require these things because I'm not going to come in, I need to know what I'm doing now and yep. please be honest with me. Mm. And so he rang me up and he said, Nina, I know the one salon I work in, they, they made, they said, if we don't have it, we can't work there. I've got two little, I didn't want it. He said, I've got two young twins, they're seven, a 12-year-old daughter. I've just bought a house. I have I've got, I've got to be able to support them. He's, and he actually said to me that he feels like he was like the guinea pig so his kids don't have to, to go through it. But he did say to me, Nina, come to my house and I've got a chair and I'll do your hair at my place, which was very nice. So I drove around to his place, pulled up outside just down a bit and my phone rings and it's him. And he said, Nina, don't come out, stay in your car. The guy across the road, is. I can see he's just about to leave. Wait for him to go because he has been ringing the police. If anyone has one person walking up their drive, anything like that, he's the one that will make trouble. So stay where you are. And, I, and that was like, oh, my God, this is really, this is really happening. This, this is exactly took me right back. And um, he then rang me and said, okay, he's gone and come up now. That was the first thing. The second one where I actually experienced it, um, I'm, I'm working on a second book now and it's been fermenting in my head. And I thought, all right, Nina, you know, maybe it's time to put it together. It's lots of poetry and short stories and all sorts of things. It's sort of going to be called like Nina, a higgledy-piggledy life, something like that. But anyway... <laughs> because I can put bits in. And I thought I just need someone to mentor this because, you know, it's a lonely journey doing my book and we need. And I heard about a woman down the road um, 
down the end of the peninsula here, who's a writer. She's written a few books. She holds workshops. And I've been asked a few times if I knew her. And I, I hadn't met her. But something, again, it's this channeling. If I get a, something goes right now, you think about it, I do it. I don't procrastinate. I find so many messages that I've half done and someone interrupted and they never went, you know. So that night I sent a message to her and I said, look, blah, 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 and it's who I am. And she knew of me. She'd heard about me. She'd been to my little shop when I had one in 2005 to 2010. And I said to her, look, maybe we can just go for a walk and I can ask you because I'm thinking of doing this book and, you know, your input would be really good, you know, I'll pay you, whatever. So she then wrote to me uh, and she said, look, I'd like to see you. She said, don't worry about the walk. I'll just come up to my place and we'll sit up on the veranda. And I went, oh, bingo, this is good. Um, she's open. So I went up to her place only last week and we sat down and she was quite a stern woman, you know, very sort of headmistress type, you know, very, very stern. And I mean, I'm a storyteller. As you can tell, I'm waving my arms around. And I was trying to tell her a few of the stories because it's about me, but she did not want to hear them. She just said, get on to it, get on to it, whatever. Okay, this is me. I'm thinking, all right. Um, and then I started referring because she did buy my book off me. She wanted a copy. And I started referring and telling her the story that I just told you. And I said, this is what's happening now. And then she turned to me and said, so if you had your vaccines... And I said, well, to be honest with you, this is not a, an area I even want to discuss with anyone um, because it's no one's business but my own, if I have or I haven't. But, you know, if we're going to work together here, I, you know, I ha I'm not ready yet. They're, they're not, it's not talking to me. There's something not right. And, um, and then she just turned to me immediately and said, well, look, I'm sorry if you haven't had your vaccines. I can't work with you. Yeah, bang. And, and I just looked, yep, I just said to her, I'm, I'm, um, I honour that. I respect your feelings about that, you know, and I'm sorry if that's how you feel, but, you know, thanks very much for seeing me. And, uh, you know, I bought a beautiful piece of homemade cake. She didn't even offer me a glass of water, let alone a piece of cake, you know, but anyway. <laughs> yes, so that was my second one. Yeah. You know? And this is, this is how they, they are creating the two-tier society in Australia. The separation. Which must have sent chills down your spine when you realised, you know, it's happening here. I walked out and I went, oh, my God, I cannot believe that this, this you know, this is really, this is real. And then I had a friend of mine who's a composer. She's been composing the most extraordinary music for this time with the words and she's putting them in film and she's editing it and she's won so many awards, international ones, actually talking about what is happening right now. And um, she was asked to go to something that was special. There were only 10, 10 people um, outside. She turned up with a plate full of food and uh, they said to her, have you been vaccinated? Well, can we leave? These are people she works with and that you know so well. And she said, well, no. Um, or she said, well, I'm sorry, but you cannot sit at the tables with us. And they said, oh, but look, here's a chair. So I put a chair right over there on its own. Oh, she said, you can sit there. Oh. She was 
devastated. She's so sensitive. She could not believe this, you know. And uh, bingo, there's a sec- another one, and it's just happening a lot now. It's, it's amazing to me that it is even happening in Australia. Um, but what's even more uh, mind-blowing to me, Nina, is that there are people out there who when we say this is the kind of thing that happens in Stalinist Russia, in Nazi Germany, in any, any dictatorship, this is what they do. They divide people and divide them among themselves and have them bickering and, and um, conflict. Uh, you know, they have a conflict among themselves so that no one's actually going after the people who are orchestrating the, the scam in the control in the first place. And, and, and yes, at the same time, there are people out there, Nina, who are so deeply in denial that when someone says, hey, this is a direct parallel, like this is what happened in Germany, this is what was going on in, in Stalinist Russia, they actually try to deny it. And I'm like, well, how can you argue with first-generation um, Auschwitz survivors? Well, there's a whole lot of denials out there who, who reckon <laughs> it never happened. You know, this is a fact. But I, I, I will do all I can because I don't have So This is about what I can do now. You know, physically, I can't get out there and go and walk and do all that that I used to. I won't put myself in those situations. Maybe I can in other ways. Mm. I just think if we light our light and we stay in that light, and that light will shine on others. We don't have to change their minds. It's not about telling them, you know, what your ideas are. Nobody else is me. No one else lives in my reality. You know, my cousin, I have a cousin who's an associate professor of nuclear medicine. She's, you know, she's a beautiful cousin. And she wrote me a long email about a week ago, which is still going around in my head. Nina, I, you know, I, I know, you know, where you're coming from and I just want to tell you that this is wrong. You've got it all wrong. And, you know, what would it be if we had the, the same, the polio, the this, the <laughs> Yeah, that, the, the usual, other. all that. And I, I, and I just, I've been trying to work out how to respond, which I will. But what I've come to is your reality is not the same as mine. I'm about freedom of choice. I'm not anti-anyone because we have choices. No matter what's going on, it's our choice. But I'm not anti-anyone or anything. And, you know, don't start telling me all this stuff which I already know because I really feel like I'm being talked to, like I'm a bit, I have no idea. You know, poor little Nina, you know, pat, pat, pat on the head. (laughs) We better remind her what's happening. So I want to do it in the most respectful, honouring way. And I I don't want to play into the aggression and the anger and the conflict and the division. And that's why I won't talk about it. I won't sort of go into those sorts of things. Sure. You know? Hmm. It, and, and yet, at the same time, you know, you're you're obviously concerned or disturbed by what you've been seeing. So, I mean, what is your sort of if you had a message for for Australians in the situation that we're in now, like what would you say to them? I guess not to take it on personally, to feel into your own heart, and to know that your soul and your conscious will tell you if you if you go there. If it feels wrong, don't. I've always got this other saying, if in doubt, don't. The slightest bit of doubt to me says 
this is not right, this is not the right time, this is not the right place or whatever. It's our messages. We have to be able to tune into those. And when you've made that decision, when you sit with it, that to just follow it through and to be like put up a barrier. Don't let what other people are saying affect you because that's their reality. My cousin's reality is living in the middle of Sydney, her five-kilometre square. They walk, do their walk on the, on the footpath. You know, she goes to the hospital. She, that is her reality, mm. is in that closed group. Yep. You know, she's got a sort of closed life. My reality is totally different. You know, I've got all of nature and everything. I don't have to do all that. Yeah. And I just... And you're not stuck in that artificial bubble with the, you know, or the, the mutual reinforcement that occurs in those city situations where the, the mind, uh, the pollution of the mind is so easily, it's so infectious and one person takes it on and, and it's that group think and people can't seem to step out of the bubble and see another perspective. Um, and, and just for anyone watching and listening and, and wondering what, what was the five-kilometre thing that Nina just referenced, well, that was people in Sydney and I think also uh, Melbourne and, and possibly the other major yeah. cities. I'm not sure exactly about other cities, but... Uh, they are under instructions to stay within five kilometres of where they live. They are not allowed out past that. <laughs> and um, they've, they've been getting, yeah. people are getting fines left, right and centre, you know, show us your papers, all this kind of nonsense, um, the f- total fascism, and Melbourne's even worse. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty bad out there, ladies and gents, but we are, we are building, we have built the prison ourselves, Nina. We've built it through our beliefs, through our being closed off, not being open and curious, not questioning things, um, depending psychologically on government and acting as if they are like parent figures and we're children. I mean, we've got to we've got to grow past this at some point. No, that's absolutely that's absolutely <coughs> true. And we're sorry. All right. And and it it's happened and it's happening, but what we have to do is to. This is where our own sovereignty of, of each one of us, you feel into it. And when you were saying that before, you said, you know, so that person then connects with that, goes, yeah, I feel this way too, and they feed each other. It's like an addiction. It's like alcoholism. 100%. An alcoholic will always want to hang around with other alcoholics because it makes them feel better. Exactly. It's, it is the same thing, but they're not seeing it. No. And you won't see it when your body is so traumatized, when your trauma is brought to the surface, which is what has happened by all this lockdown, and that trauma comes to the surface, you can't see clearly. You're feeling fear. You are in absolute fear. And, it, and then you get somebody else to come in and goes, yes, I feel like that too. Oh, good, they're my buddy. They understand me. We do need each other. But um, it is like a, an addiction. It know? is totally, totally. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. that, Nina. Thank you. Um, and maybe before before we wrap up, I feel like mm. you've you've really been a, a great voice here um, on behalf of Australians in general, um, as well as for your own your own history and story and your parents' story. Um, can you remind us what the name of of your book is and um, and what are the mm-hmm. details around being able to access that? Okay, so it's got all my little, look, I'm really showing you my tattered version because when I go and do talks, etc. So it's called Don't Cry Dance, a memoir of war, love and forgiveness because forgiveness is a very important word in all of this. 
if we can't forgive, we don't have to go up to the person, but within ourselves to forgive. If we don't, we hold that anger and that becomes part of the trauma cushion, you know, fills out more trauma. Oh, I'll put another bit of trauma on top of that one, that sort yeah, of thing. Totally. So, <clears throat> and it's really, it's really self-liberation, isn't it? When you, yes. the act of forgiveness, that's what it is. Yeah. And look, you've got my, um, my website and just uh, www.ninaangelo.com.au and there's a whole thing. I've done an audio book, which I spoke, but this one's got photos, maps that you can actually follow, the journey of my parents, and uh, it's got photos and photos. of. So that sort of adds a little bit more to it. And uh, for the Jewish Museum has got it because I self-published and the reason I did that was because I could not give my book to some editor somewhere who could change or take things out. This is my parents talking and me talking. I'm not going to let some stranger play around with that. So it was a big journey if it hadn't been for a couple of friends helping me financially, but I had to be true to what what it was. Um, I've got them, like, uh, you know, if you go there, I've got, them. I've got a whole lot here because I had all these places I was going to launch it at the Greek Festival of Sydney. I was going to be launching it in Melbourne um, for a big uh, international author and a book um, expo right in the middle of Melbourne. Um, all This is two years in a row to both of these big things where I'd get up on stage and I could present had, um, had closed the doors on it. So either through me or um, the Jewish Museum, that's about it right now. Okay. NinaAngelo.com.au was the website there to get that get that book, ladies and gents. And of all, of all the times in our kind of current history that we need a good, solid reminder of what has been done and what needs to be yeah. not done ever again um, and the lessons that we could learn. I mean, of all the times that you should be able to get this in front of people, uh, it's now. And, <laughs> of course, you know, the, the the collective conscious trying to trying to keep itself asleep at the wheel there. So... Yes. I'll, uh, I'll help. I'll help you give give it a little plug, and hopefully some um, some people out there will get their hands on it and, and read that and learn that story and and have that perspective. Yes. And 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 just look at the horrors of what's happened. Just before I go, one little last story. When I was lying there healing, it was into it was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I was really crook. And I'm lying in my bed, and I've got my computer beside me, and up came this thing about Holocaust Remembrance Day. And there was a photo of a Nazi standing at a microphone, upstanding, and he was talking to a whole lot of people. You couldn't see the people. You could just see him. And behind him was a truck, the back of a truck. And on that truck were piles of bodies, right? The piles of bodies behind him and and I saw this and my mother's role, one of my mother's roles in Auschwitz was to collect the bodies from the barracks and take them to the crematoriums and put them on the back of these trucks. And so I, just, I guess I'm saying this because the horror of it is how things are working towards now, mm-hmm. except the bodies aren't there for people to see. We don't even know who they are and if they really exist or what they died of. 
yeah, well, this is it. So what you're, you're really vividly seeing a repetition of events that we're heading in that direction. I'm just seeing people turning on each other sure. and dividing. When we start dividing because whether we've had a jab or we haven't had a jab. It's ludicrous. And where the, all the conversation on all the news and all the radio stations is about this, I don't even bother to turn them on anymore because everything else in life seems to have vanished except this. I know, right? Everyone's got tunnel vision. All they can talk about is the stupid needle. See, that's exactly right. And that's, why, that's how I feel. I'm with you there, and I think a lot of, a lot of our listeners and viewers are right there with you, Nina. So um, yeah. I, I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to have a chat. I'm glad we've connected. I'm, I'm stoked to have had you on and chatted. And thank you for, for raising awareness and sharing your story and putting your voice out there in the world. My pleasure, Brendan. It's really important to do this now, you know, and it's about having the courage to speak up and, mm. and people need to dig deep into their courage. And if you see things are wrong, don't criticise. I mean, don't start. Don't start having a go because you become as bad as they do. There are other ways, yeah. you know. You know, I, saw, I sort of saw Gandhi, you know, be like Gandhi. Shine your light. Speak your truth. And love, because this is how we can slowly change things. Yeah. One light at a time. Beautiful. Well, may yours shine on brightly for many more years, Nina. Thank you so much for that. And um, ladies and gentlemen, just again, ninaangelo.com.au if you want to check out her work and her book. She is also an artist as well as being a storyteller. Mm. Thank you so much, Nina. My pleasure, Brendan. My pleasure. If you're sick and tired of cancel culture and censorship on social media, please feel welcome to join me and thousands of red-pilled folk at my own independent alternative, truth.network. That's http colon slash slash t-r-o-o-t-h dot network. See you there.